as they seek a course of treatment for this. Um, and uh, that's the health updates we have for this evening. Um, let's begin by going to God for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbly grateful to be able to approach you, to share our concerns, to share our requests, to approach you in this format of prayer. We thank you for, for allowing us to speak to you and, and to share, this, share these things with you. And Lord, we take this time out every week to acknowledge and to lift up those who need our prayers, and we bring them before you because you are the creator of this world. You are our loving Father, and you are the great physician. And so we want to bring these to you and ask for you uh, to be with these individuals. We are grateful, Lord, that Matt Lane has continued to see health improvements and is, and is on the precipice of uh, being released from the hospital and going into to some sort of rehab. We pray that that transition will go smoothly and that his rehab process will go quickly. Uh, we ask for your blessings on him and Carrie as they continue to uh, uh, deal with a lot of things going on in the, their lives as they... Uh, uh, as Carrie is looking at, uh, or they're looking at moving and have all these things going on, we, we, we lift them up, Lord, and pray that all will go well in, in this time period and that Matt will be able to um, uh, continue to get better. Lord, we are also mindful of Jennifer Waters. We're, we, we lift her up as she's dealing with this um, cancer that has uh, infected her body. We pray that she'll be able to with the medical professionals, determine a, a, a good course of treatment and that it will be effective in combating the cancer. We ask for your blessings on her health at this time. And Lord, we, um, we know there are, there are many loved ones who are, are dealing with illnesses, who, are, who are, uh, have pending treatments, who have upcoming procedures. And Lord, we have uh, some in our number who are expecting uh, babies any day now. Lord, we lift them all up to you and it is our prayer that in, in any medical situation that's going on that you will be with those who are ill and with those who have upcoming things and, and may you bless their health, especially be with uh, Jensi and, and Deanna right now as, as they're expecting children any day and, and may their deliveries go smoothly and may these babies be born healthy. Lord, we come before you and we uh, acknowledge how great you've been to us, and we acknowledge that you've blessed us in so many ways. Help us tonight, as we have set aside this time to study your word, help us to glean and, and help us to uh, grow in our, our knowledge of, of you, your will, and may we come to appreciate all the more the, the, your, your word. And Lord, help us to live out our lives in accordance with it. It is through your Son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We are continuing our study of the life of Christ. It's a slow but steady study. Tonight we're going to look at an event that has some chronological uh, obscurity to it, but that is a significant event in the, in, in the early part of Jesus' ministry at least. And it has to do with his being rejected in his hometown. Now, this particular story, the, what I'm just simply referring to as the Nazareth rejection, it appears in three of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read all three accounts as we get started, and then our focus is going to primarily shift to Luke's account, which is 
much longer than the other two. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, excuse me, verse 53 through 58 to begin. Then we'll go over to Mark's gospel. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they look. Excuse me, I'm sorry. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mark's is very similar. It's in the sixth chapter of Mark, and it covers the first six verses. So we're going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do, many, do mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So Matthew and Mark's accounts are very similar. It's when we get to this third account, Luke's, that the story broadens and gets a little more detailed and a little bigger. Luke's account is in the fourth chapter. Verses 16 through 30, just hearing those numbers, the verse numbers, you see it's a, a much bigger account. So let's lead, read Luke's account, and then we'll dive into this particular event in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. All right, so let's talk about what's happening in this particular story. First thing we need to address, though, is some chronology. Now, that's not always fun, but I want you to understand, we just saw one of this story told in Matthew chapter 13, in Mark chapter 6, and in Luke chapter 4. Now, that's pretty varied as far as the depth into the text of the, the script of each book that this story appears. So I want, you, I want to help you understand this a little bit. Because if you look at Matthew's account, Matthew presents this story pretty late in Jesus' ministry. He actually places it well after the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount takes place from chapter 5 through chapter 8. We're all the way in chapter 13. He's placing it um, after the selection of the apostles, after the apostles' first campaign when Jesus sent them out on a, a limited mission into Galilee to proclaim the good news. He's presenting this just shortly before the feeding of the 5,000, which takes place in Matthew chapter uh, 14. So this is very interesting. This is pretty late in the the ministry of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 most likely happened about a year before Jesus' death. So think about that in context. Matthew places it pretty late. But there is something interesting about the how it kind of corroborates with Luke. There's this statement in Luke chapter 4 in verse 23 where in in the midst of the story, in the midst of the telling of Jesus' rejection, this statement is made by the people at the synagogue in Nazareth. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What are they referring to? They're saying, hey, we've heard you have done these miracles over in Capernaum. Do them here, too. It was this desire to see a sign. So, obviously, Luke chapter 4 gives the implication, at least, that Jesus had been healing and teaching in Capernaum, at the very least, if not elsewhere, prior to going to Nazareth and being rejected in the synagogue. And so that little statement in Luke chapter 4, verse 23, seems to corroborate Matthew's placement of this event in his gospel because he places it late after Jesus has traveled what we call the first Galilean tour, where he's gone throughout all of the Galilean region, sharing the good news, uh, preaching, teaching, healing, doing miracles, exercising demons, that sort of thing. There's a lot of events in the life of Jesus that happened before Matthew chapter 13. But then we get to Luke's gospel. Luke places it in the fourth chapter. You know what's really interesting about uh, Matthew and Luke? Is that through the fourth chapter of both gospels, there's some consistency in chronology. In In both gospels, the temptation of Jesus happens in the fourth chapter. That's just a little interesting tidbit. And so Luke places this event, the rejection at Nazareth, in the fourth chapter, immediately after the temptation. It's one of the earliest events that Luke records after Jesus begins his ministry. 
So Jesus goes off and gets baptized. Then he goes off and spends the days in the wilderness being tempted. Now he goes back to Nazareth and gets rejected in their synagogue. Now, you heard me mention that there, there was corroboration between Luke chapter 4 and Matthew's chronology. Well, that one statement seems to corroborate Matthew. Luke then decides in his chronology to place this event as the first thing he does in Galilee, or roundabout. Now, you'll, you will notice, if you look at Luke chapter 4, that immediately before um, we're told about the rejection of, of, at Nazareth, if you look at verses, oh, I've lost them. Hold on. The two verses immediately before this story in Luke's account, it's verse 14 and 15. Right after the temptation, we're told that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 is a buffer verse, verses between the temptation and the rejection at Nazareth. And it says, yeah, he came back and he did go to these other, place, these other towns and he taught in their synagogues. So it does confirm that. So maybe that's our reference to what's happening in Capernaum. Maybe he's gone to Capernaum before he came to Nazareth and Luke just didn't record that. But here's the point. Matthew places this event quite late in the ministry of Jesus. Luke places it quite early. But there is a statement in Matthew that seems to support Luke. This is what's so weird about this. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 corroborates by implying that Jesus returned to Nazareth after the temptation before he moved to Capernaum. Look at Matthew chapter 4 real quick. I mentioned earlier that uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 both have the temptation. Now you look at Matthew chapter 4 and you go down to verse 12 and 13. And here's what we read. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. It sounds almost like he went to Nazareth, but then he went to uh, Capernaum. Now, it could be saying, this is another possibility, it could be saying he chose not to return to Nazareth. Leaving Nazareth, instead of going back there, he's leaving it. He's not returning to that as his hometown. He's going to set up shop in Capernaum instead. That could be a possible understanding here too, but it sounds more like he went to Nazareth and then journeyed on to Capernaum. So here, listen, all this is convoluted. All this is kind of one of those things where you're like, okay, Kyle, you're rambling on. What's the point? The point is the chronology is messed up. That's the point. But, and Mark doesn't help us. Let me point this out. Mark places this event in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, as we already saw, but he places it before the apostles' campaign. When Jesus takes the 12 apostles after selecting them and says, okay, you're going to go out into Galilee. I, don't want, you to, I, want, I want you to go out and I want you to preach good news. Uh, don't, don't take anything with you, all that stuff. Matthew says this event happened after that campaign. Mark says it happened before that campaign. The point is we don't know exactly where this event should fall. I choose to put it here in conjunction with where Luke places it in our study because I think there's something important that Jesus intentionally chooses not to set up camp in Nazareth. His home base is going to become Capernaum. And as we get into our next lesson, 
that will um, matter a little bit more. And so I decided we'll go ahead and talk about this event now from a chronological perspective because I think it helps us understand why he's working out of Capernaum instead of out of Nazareth where his family is from. So is there a lot of significance to this? No, not really. But it is worth pointing out where our Gospels don't sink from a timeline perspective sometimes. Here's what I think is ultimately what happened. Jesus left from the temptation, went back to Galilee. Both Matthew and Luke confirmed that. I believe maybe he went to Nazareth first, got rejected there, and then set up shop over in Capernaum. And then um, Matthew just chooses to record this at a much later event. We can't assume that all the gospel writers really cared about chronology. We know John didn't. But Luke seems to be trying to put together something that's um, detailed, something that's researched, something that's uh, coordinated. And so I lean on Luke's chronology a lot. Now let's start talking about what happens in Nazareth now that I've pointed something out to you that may seem completely insignificant, but it's always fascinating to me. So let's focus on the details of this story. Jesus is going to his hometown. Think about that for a moment. Now some of you have never left your hometown. I'm not one of those. I grew up in North Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, which is literally north of Little Rock, across the Arkansas River from it. I grew up there. I went to college in, you know, Searcy, Arkansas at Harding. uh, Harding. I thought I would never leave Arkansas. But then I had to find a job. (laughs) And and that's how I ended up uh, in Pensacola and then here. And you will often hear, especially preachers, quote from this story about how a prophet's not welcome in their hometown. There's something about us that we struggle as people to accept a preacher that we saw grow up. There's something about that. Don't preach to me. I watched you as a kid. I... I, I know what you did. You know, that kind of thing. It exists. Um, And it's so fascinating because Jesus is experiencing that. Jesus is going back to a place where the, the people saw him as a little boy. Doing little boy stuff. I think one thing that can be difficult for us is we think Jesus was mature and solemn from the moment he was born that Jesus probably never cried because that would be a bad baby. Or Jesus probably never threw a temper tantrum because that would be a bad baby. Or Jesus never got upset at something because that would be a bad child. Truth is, I think Jesus had as normal a childhood as you and I could call our childhood normal. (laughs) I don't know that all of us would agree that our childhood was normal, but I believe Jesus was a normal kid. I believe he was a sinless kid, but just because he's sinless doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes, right? 
there's a difference between never sinning and never making a mistake. Jesus' dad is a carpenter. Do you think Jesus ever missed a nail and hit his finger? Do you think just because he's the son of God that he's, not, he, he, that he's got perfect swing every time and always hits the nail on the head? Do you think Jesus is walking down the street and never tripped over a stone, never bumped his toe or got a papyrus cut on his finger? Which I don't know if you can actually do that. I just made that up. We need to remember that Jesus was as human as you and I are. And though he never sinned, that doesn't mean things didn't happen to him. And these people observed that. He's going back to his hometown where these people saw him grow up. That is always daunting to some degree. Pictured on the screen is what uh, the interior of a Jewish synagogue in the first century probably looked like. The kind of bleachers on the sides uh, that they would all sit around and face toward the center. And then the uh, communicator would be up in the center reading from a text or teaching from a text or leading them in prayer or whatever the part of the synagogue service they were in at that point. I want you to notice three particular details in this story for just a moment. Notice first that Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 tells us that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The fact that it was his custom or his habit, that tells us that Jesus faithfully, faithfully worshipped God as a first century Jew. He attended synagogue every Sabbath like every other Jewish person was expected to do. He was your Sunday morning crowd, if you want to say it that way. Jesus was there in the synagogue, whatever town he was in, you would find him in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This tells us something about his character, about his love for his Father. This tells us something about his righteousness and his devotion. And you can also see in the Gospels how we have him traveling to Jerusalem for the, the major feasts such as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles. He's making the pilgrimage like every other adult male was expected to do in the Jewish faith. Jesus observed the law perfectly. It was his custom. And anytime I see that phrase in relation to this story, it always makes me wonder, do I live up to the as-was-his-custom phrase? If, if Jesus was a member of the Buford Church of Christ in the 2021, what practices would be his custom and his habit? And do I mimic that? Do, do I compare with that in some fashion? Not just attendance, but what about prayer life? What about biblical study? What about uh, participation in, in, in ministries? What, what about evangelistic efforts? What about serving the community? What would Jesus' custom be today? And am I mimicking that? Just a thought that I always come across when I see that word, as, that phrase, as was his custom. The next thing you're going to notice is that he stood up to read. Now, we can talk about standing up and the significance that that played in their, their faith system about respecting the law. But the first impression I get whenever I read this is that Jesus just randomly rises out of the audience to take over the service. But that's not what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus doesn't just show up at this synagogue, kick down the door, and come in and start proclaiming whatever he wants. In a synagogue service like this, there was an attendant. That term appears in our text. There was somebody who's in charge of the order of the service. And that person has the, uh, uh, the freedom to ask members of the, 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 of the synagogue to participate by reading a text or by leading a prayer or, or whatever it was. And in particular, the attendant might ask someone who is a known teacher or a well-respected teacher, I should say, to communicate some message from the Word of God that day. So if you hold your place here in Luke chapter 4 and you were to skip over to Acts chapter 13, there's an occasion where Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they arrive in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And it's Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, where we're told that after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul and Barnabas are at a synagogue that is not their home synagogue, and they're invited to stand up and share a message of encouragement. I imagine that's kind of along the lines of what's happening with Jesus. Remember, Luke's gospel in verses 12, excuse me, verse 15 and 16, or 14 and 15, I guess it was, had said that prior to entering the synagogue, Jesus had gone around to some other communities in Galilee and taught in their synagogues. So his knowledge of him as a teacher was spreading. And let's not forget, when he was 12 years old, he was already being admired for his understanding of the law. So he has a bit of a reputation already as a great teacher. And so here he is in his home synagogue. They invite him to speak. So Luke indicates that, that uh, Jesus has received an invitation to stand up and read. That's what that really means. Jesus' reputation has, has allowed him this, this opportunity to, in his own synagogue, share a message from God's Word. The next thing you'll notice is that he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls the scroll and he found the place where it was written. What we have here is that Jesus is given a particular scroll to read from. He doesn't get to choose what book of the Bible he's going to read from. In fact, a, a, a book like Isaiah, which is a fairly long book, could have, depending on how it was uh, how it was recorded on the scroll could end up taking more than one scroll, but, more, but it's quite likely that they did have it on, on one. He's handed the book of Isaiah. He didn't choose that. See, some might think that Jesus showed up in there ready to read, this, ready to read Isaiah 61 no matter what, but, but he's given a particular scroll to use. But he did choose the passage in the scroll. And it's interesting, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, that's a very important passage in the ministry of Jesus. It may have been one of, one of his favorites to talk about. It will resurface. This particular passage resurfaces when the John the Baptist sends him messengers. While he's in prison, he sends messengers to meet with Jesus and ask him a question about 
his identity. And his answer is quoting this passage. This passage that in Luke's account says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there are two different occasions in the ministry of Jesus that he's going to use Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Here in Nazareth at the synagogue, and then later when John's asking him a question about his identity. And I think the reason Jesus cared so much about this passage is because it identifies the evidence by which someone can know whether or not Jesus was the Christ. In other words, Isaiah's prophecy indicates that you can identify who the Messiah is because he's the one who proclaims good news. He's the one who restores sight. He's the one who uh, pronounces freedom to the captive, that sort of thing. So I think Jesus particularly liked this passage because it's a passage that tells you how to know if the Messiah is there. And so he uses that passage here. And then he makes that statement, today, today, this passage, has, or this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we're going to get around to that in a minute, but I want you to first, I want to talk about the reactions of the people here. Whoa. Here's Jesus, this boy they've watched grow up. This boy that undoubtedly they know a little bit about his backstory, maybe even the circumstances surrounding his birth, that sort of thing. And here he is reading from Isaiah chapter 61, and now he's given uh, the opportunity to expound on it because Matthew and Mark both talk about him teaching, not just reading, but teaching. So he's been allowed to expound on this passage. And here's the thing, if you look at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, it says that those who heard Jesus were astonished. Luke says in chapter 4, verse 22, that they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, this isn't an, an unusual reaction for people when they heard Jesus teach. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 7, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And there's a similar statement that appears in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22 after Jesus taught at the synagogue in Capernaum. So everywhere Jesus goes, well, maybe I shouldn't say everywhere, but Jesus has frequently taught and people have reacted to it with astonishment. They're amazed at his teaching. But that amazement quickly goes away. Because by the end of the account, we find out that they're offended by what he says. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 57 and Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 both say they took offense at him. That's fascinating. Because if you read through, Luke is the one who provides us the greatest depth of what he taught that day. 
And if you read through it, you nor I are going to be offended. When we think about being offended by something somebody preached, we equate that with, you just stepped on my toes in a way that I'm not comfortable with. You just told me something is wrong that I don't like. That's kind of the mentality we have when somebody says something that offends us from the pulpit. But Jesus here, let me read again what is said by him. It's in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. He closes the scroll. He sits down. Everybody looks at him. In verse 21, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, initially you think, okay, that's, that must be what offended them. But it's the very next verse, verse 22, that tells us that they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. But he goes on, verse 23 of Luke 4. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. He's telling them some of their history from the Old Testament. He goes on to talk about Elisha and Naaman. And when they heard these things, verse 28 of Luke 4, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Let me tell you what I think is happening here and what I think could easily happen with us. I don't think they were offended by the passage he chose to quote from. I don't think they were offended by him saying today this scripture has been fulfilled. But I do think they understood the implication of what he was saying. They understood that when he said today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he's ultimately saying he's the one about whom Isaiah was prophesying. And and though they didn't immediately take offense to that, I think it started the process of offense. Because notice in Matthew chapter 13, if you go over to Matthew's account, and look at verse 54 and 56 of Matthew chapter 13. It's there, this audience begins saying among themselves, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are are, are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did he get all these things? In other words, that crowd from his hometown is saying to themselves, isn't he one of us? Wasn't he raised here just like us? Didn't he grow up like we did? So in in my opinion, they they, they kind of appear to start questioning, wait a second. He's claiming that Isaiah's prophesying about him? But we know him. He's that carpenter's son, right? Now, those are his brothers. There's his sisters. That's his mom. We, we know this guy. He can't be the Messiah. 
And I think that starts to transition in a, into a who-do-you-think-you-are type mentality. And as they process what he's saying, as they really consider it, I think they're offended because this man, as they called him, where did this man get this wisdom? I think they're offended because this man, who they've known since he was a boy, is now claiming to be someone better than them. You see, by identifying himself as the Messiah, though I am sure you know, he's going to eventually be tried and executed for blasphemy, I'm sure blasphemy is on their mind. Uh, he's equating himself to God. I'm sure that's in the back of their mind, but I wonder if they're more offended because he just demeaned them. He's one of us, and he thinks he's better than us. He grew up here just like us, and he's going to claim to be the Son of God. I mean, later on in his life, someone's going to, to say, can anything good come out of what? I just wonder if they're starting to th process this statement, and at first they're excited. Today this, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Oh, that's, such a, that's an encouraging statement. God's word is being fulfilled. But then they start to process the implications. But in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, he'd have to be the one it's talking about. But he can't be the Messiah. I remember when he was just eight years old and he did blah, blah, blah. See, that doesn't compute for them because they remember seeing his humanity up close and personal. Maybe they watched him make mistakes like I talked about early on, hitting his thumb with a, a hammer, st st uh, stumbling over a stone in the path. Some, maybe they saw things like that and that doesn't register with them for, um, for a messiah. Maybe they even remember when he got separated from his parents during that Passover in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old, and they registered that as an act of disobedience because they didn't know the full story. Maybe they were even aware of his scandalous birth. One commentator pointed out that the reference to Jesus as the son of Mary when they were doing their own questions, they said, is not his mother called Mary? Maybe that reference reflects rumors that he was an illegitimate child and may have been a deliberate slur by the townspeople. Maybe that was their jab. Is not he Mary's son? <laughs> you know, you know the, the one. Maybe their mind is processing all these type things as he's talking. And at first they're excited to hear today this scripture. I keep wanting to say passage because that's how I would say it in the pulpit. This scripture is fulfilled in your presence. They're excited to hear that, but then the implications start sinking in. And they're struggling with that. So in their eyes, his claim to be Christ, they might be realizing, that, well, that's foolishness at best and arrogance at worst. That might be how they're processing this. And they might be getting slightly offended when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. But they didn't get enraged until they understood another implication of what he says. 
See, it's really verses 23 through 27 of Luke 4 that caused the problem here for them. That's the part where he says, um, uh, he talks about they're wanting him to do a sign in their hometown like he did in Capernaum. And then he talks about Elijah and Elisha. See, Jesus knew what the people in the synagogue were saying to each other. He knew their hearts and their minds and where they were at. He knew that they didn't believe he was the Messiah, and the only reason they were there was because they wanted to see a sign. And one thing Jesus refused to be throughout his whole ministry, Jesus refused to be a sideshow act. So he, in effect, said he wasn't going to perform a sign for them because they weren't deserving of his power. In fact, it's Matthew and Mark who will tell us that he did not do many or any uh, miraculous things there because of their lack of faith. It's fascinating all throughout Scripture. Jesus, especially in the, the life of Jesus, miracles are most often associated with the person's faith for whom they are being done. It's the faith of the person who's making the request that, that Jesus credits the miracle to many, many times. And here there is no faith in this town. And so Jesus indicates that he's not going to do a sign because there's no faith. Then he implied that Gentiles were more deserving of his attention than his hometown was. This is what set them over the edge. This is what infuriated them. Because it was a slap in the face to their heritage. How dare he imply that Gentiles are more deserving than they were? when they're the ones who were chosen by God as the Jewish people. They're the ones who are keeping Mosaic law. Those Gentiles are not. They're the ones who are the descendants of Abraham, not the Gentiles. In fact, this so infuriated them that we're told they were filled with wrath and attempted to execute him by throwing him off a cliff. That's verses 28 and 29 of Luke 4. And so it's at this point you see that this audience who initially accepts Jesus by inviting him to, to read and speak in their presence and who initially is astonished by his wisdom, they've turned on him. They've turned on him and rejected him because they're offended at the fact that he thinks he's better than them or because the, or they're offended because he won't perform a sign there, or they're offended because he just said gen, the Gentiles are more deserving of his attention than they are. Any one of those three things could be the trigger for anyone present in that room. But they all compounded, I believe, to elicit their wrath and to lead them to the point of wanting to kill him when his ministry is just getting started. Now think about that. Someone tried to kill him when his life was getting started. Now someone's trying to kill him when his ministry is getting started. And eventually someone's going to kill him 
when his acceptance is getting started. Just think about that triumphal entry a few days before his death. Finally, the crowds are treating Jesus the way he ought to be treated when he's riding in on that donkey. Finally, he's being worshipped and praised and adored for who he is. And in just a few days, he finally will die. So we have an execution attempt on Jesus' life. I, I want to show this real quick. Let me grab my clicker. Here is a picture of the traditional site for this attempted execution of Jesus. This is called, uh, in English, Mount Precipice. It is the uh, assumed traditional site of where the people from Nazareth escorted Jesus to throw him off of a cliff. It's not the tallest mountain in the region, but it is significant in size. It's about 1,200, oh, let me find it. It's about 1,296 feet to the top. It's only one and a quarter miles from the city center of modern-day Nazareth. So maybe this is where they took Jesus. Now, when we picture this, we typically, I don't know if you're like me, but I picture a sheer cliff, like you throw and he's going to drop until he hits the ground. Whereas this is more of a throw and watch him roll down. There is another possibility that one commentator mentioned that they may have actually been preparing to stone Jesus. Because there has been some evidence that stoning isn't just grabbing little rocks that you can hold in your hand and throwing at like baseballs at somebody, which is going to hurt, and if enough of them hit you, you are going to die. Some believe stoning was throw them in a pit or throw them in a valley and roll boulders over the edge to crush them. I don't know how you, I, I don't know if that is exactly how stoning was done, but it's been proposed as an alternative to just picking up rocks and throwings. Now, mind you, if you think about the woman caught in adultery in, at the end of John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8, they pick up stones in the presence of Jesus. That wasn't near a cliff or a pit, so that does give support for the throwing baseball-like stones at somebody. Um, maybe the practice varied. So some have suggested that maybe they were going to throw Jesus off and then pelt him with boulders and stones from above. But that's not stated in the text, so that's just uh, um, theoretical for the record. But I thought it would be interesting to show you where this supposedly happened. That's not a guaranteed location. There is a monument up there uh, where that, uh, on that particular mountain uh, commemorating this particular event. Now, here's what I really want to end with as we talk about the rejection at Nazareth. One thing I love about Jesus in this story is when the crowds turned on him, it would have been so easy for him to capitulate to them. It would have been so easy for him to retrace his steps, to back up and start over, to say something to calm them down, to appease them. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus didn't change his message to appease an irate crowd. He didn't say what was politically correct in the moment. He said what was true. 
I think we need to take that away from Jesus. I think we need to uh, observe how Jesus spoke truth and dealt with the consequences and understand that we have to do the same. I also think it's worth pointing out that after this event, this is, according to one commentator, this is the last recorded visit of Jesus to a synagogue which suggests that the pattern of ministry that, that Jesus did in the earliest days of his ministry, of going to synagogues, kind of ceased. And what ends up happening after this is you start seeing him in houses, personal houses, more than you, you do in public meeting spaces. But what's even bigger, this is the last time he ever went to Nazareth as far as we know. There's no other recorded trip in the Bible of Jesus to his hometown. This is how his neighbors from childhood treated him. And when he rejected them, it was final. As far as we know, he never returned. I think there are some spiritual implications there. You don't want to be guilty of being like the, Naz the, the citizens of Nazareth rejecting Jesus and never having the chance to accept him again? Thankfully, it doesn't quite work that way. Thankfully, our Lord is, has an open-door policy for the most part, like the prodigal son returning to his father. I wonder how hard it was for Jesus to leave Nazareth. I often wonder... If some of the men that escorted him to the edge of that cliff were some of his boyhood best friends, some of his dreidel partners or something like that. I wonder if he celebrated bar mitzvahs with some of these guys. You know, I wonder how bad that hurt, that rejection the first true rejection that he's going to experience, and it's just a small scale comparison to what he'll experience at the end of his life. Here he gets a taste of what Calvary's going to feel like emotionally. And I wonder if that rejection that kind of rejection hurts as much as the nails going through his wrists and his feet. Tonight we take a look at what happened in Nazareth, the one lone event that we have during his ministry that happened there. And we do so at this point in, in our study because it seems to have impact on the rest of his, his ministry in that he sets up shop in Capernaum and works from there. And next week... No, in two weeks, we'll start studying the events that happen out of his Capernaum base and how he starts touring Galilee in ministry. Next Wednesday night, we will have a, being that it's the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we're going to have a singing night. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for that as we praise God and prepare for our day of Thanksgiving by worshiping and adoring Him. Uh, we will not have class next Wednesday night, so make plans for that.
we're a little early, but I have already heard the first bell, which I think was a little early. Uh, any questions, comments, or any other observations, that sort of thing, before we close up our time? Simile. Yes. Yes. If you couldn't hear Miss Emily, she was saying that um, often that, that one of the proofs for the validity of the, the Gospels in particular is the fact that they aren't cookie cutter, that the stories don't match identically. Because if, if the disciples, or if it was a hoax, they would have gotten together and gotten the stories in order a little bit more smoothly so that people wouldn't question it. That was my summary of what she said. She said it better, but that was my summary. But, uh, and that is true. A lot of, uh, will, that will often be cited as, as proof of, of uh, the Gospels being untampered with because they have their own uh, style and their own uh, order and their, and their own... Uh, verbiage and that sort of thing, and it's not just one size fits all uh, in the storytelling of Jesus's life, which is how if you and I were trying to pull a con, we would work out our story with every detail so that they cooperate, and the gospel writers didn't do that. Anything else anybody wants to share or ask? All right, let's close out with a prayer, and then we'll go ahead and dismiss. might be a little bit before the other classes get out. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this evening. It is our prayer that uh, you'll be with us through the rest of this week and help us to uh, live faithfully to you, help us to um, fight off temptations, help us to uh, be a light in our community, help us to be more like your Son. Lord, we appreciate his example and the lessons we can glean from his life. Uh, bless us as we continue this study throughout the next several months, and may it continue to be um, beneficial to us. Lord, we thank you for sending him, and we thank you for his willingness to go to the cross in our stead. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.